As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Once again, one more episode. Uh, Matt, uh, I can see Matt. You guys can't. <clears throat> it's Matt and I today. Hello. I'm doing the intro. Here I am. Matt's here, and he's waving at me with one of his fingers, like doing a cute little, uh, a cute little wave. The Is one finger you, wave? I was trying to figure out what that means. What are you, do, what are you doing there? Are you just saying I'm, hello? I just, I'm, I'm, I can't <clears throat> muster the cal- caloric load to bring all five of my fingers to wave. Okay, all right. Yeah. Just, just one. Afraid. Very good. All right. We've got a, we've got a uh, lot well, of podcasting we're doing today. If you can so just imagine we're on a video call and we're podcasting and Matt just starts waving his little finger at me. I was, uh, well, his index finger. And Thank I was just you. Because like, it does matter which finger I'm waving. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, is he saying hello in a cute way or is he uh, trying to get my attention? Is he telling me to stop the recording? Just um, being cute, Ben. All right. Just being cute. That's great. Great to know. Um well, we're here today uh, to introduce um, this podcast. I wasn't on this interview, Matt. Yeah, you Christy and, Christy and I did this. Did this one uh, with Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson talking about reparations. Yeah, yeah. This book was incredible. Trigger warning. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe for Back some. Well, I'm sure it's going to be in the title of the podcast. So maybe you're yeah. hate listening to this. Welcome. Uh, Welcome. Maybe maybe we actually picked you up. Uh, your listener um, who went through the four part series with Dr. Nathan Cartagena with us about. Critical race theory, but this actually yeah. follows uh, fairly closely on the heels of that. And Duke and Greg are um, Christians who argue that not only is it um, appropriate culturally and socially to bring reparations, but they also argue biblically and as a Christian, it's the good and meet thing to do. Mm. It's virtuous and moral and righteous. 
to do it as well. This book uh, is incredible. It's so well written. Sometimes c- content is great, but the delivery is not so good. And sometimes it's um, delivery's pretty slick, but the content is thin. Like it could have been this. This should have been a blog, blog post kind of book. Um, each of the chapters in this book could have been a book on on their own. That that's yeah. how and, and it's so well written that I'm confident all of our listeners can digest it mm. uh, and market inwardly market. Inwardly, so, we've got a lot of old timey <laughs> phrases going on. How do you Good like and that? Neat, inwardly marked. See, this digest. is why I was waving with one finger. I had to I had to save all yep. the all the energy for these big <laughs> big words, dime store words. Uh, anyway, so uh, and this conversation with Duke and Greg uh, was a lot of fun. Greg. Greg got cranked up a couple times and it was awesome. I wanted to just like give him some room, uh, and then I and then Duke uh, shared some incredibly profound things as well. So yeah, That's it's great. a joy to bring this, this to you. Yeah. yeah, it's a joy. Yeah, and uh, you know we were just talking um, before we hit record here about um, the Critical Race Theory series with uh, Nathan Cartagena, um, and just you know like podcasting is a little interesting because it's sort of, it's sort of like a Twitter post, right? It's like, it's in the stream of, of podcasts, but then if you ever want to like go back and listen to something, you have mm-hmm. to like scroll back through and where was that? And what mm-hmm. was the date and that kind of thing. So for, for series like, um, Nathan's, uh, and you know, who knows what this, the, this talk about reparations might be included in something like this, but we're, we're trying to figure out how to package some of this stuff up into like, uh, audio courses into like um, format that would be helpful for people to digest it again and again, or Aye. easily found um, and and kind of like um, worked through as like a course. Um, and so, anyway, to that end, we want to just tease uh, something that's coming uh, hopefully later this year um, is some kind of a some kind of a platform on our site, like a membership platform, where we can have some of these courses that are. Um, there, some of the some of our courses are free, mm-hmm. uh, but these th- there's a group of courses I think that we'd have some kind of a nominal fee uh, to access this membership platform and and be able to work your way through these courses um, and uh, along with a number of other things. Uh, uh, for a long time, people in the gravity community have wanted to kind of connect with each other, not just listen to the podcast or mm. not just you know join a, a coaching cohort or things like that, but be connected to the wider group. Um, of folks that that is gravity, and so there'd be a way to do that in this platform. So anyway, we were just talking about it this morning, and kind of excited about it. A friend of ours is taking a class at a Christian college uh, here in Indiana, and he messaged us this morning and said that right. it's an ethics class on Christian ethics. Yeah. And um, one of the students in his class recommended the interview with Nathan Cartagena on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. The professor listened to it and added mm-hmm. it to the supplemental resources for the course. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually, uh, there's a lot of value that Nathan gave us and, and and Greg and Duke gave us in this, and we're trying to figure out a way to maybe give it a more permanent or settled presence somewhere. Because, mm-hmm. you know, podcasts are very, um, you listen to them once and you're kind of finished, but how can we mine out the gold in these? So we're, yeah. we're thinking through that. If you have ideas, hit us up. Let us know. Yeah. Podcast at gravityleadership.com. And yeah. in the meantime, this is the occasion for you to listen to this occasional podcast on reparations. It's fantastic. All right, here we go. Duke and Greg, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank Thanks you. For having us. 
Uh, Duke Kwan is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he uh, his mission uh, of the church includes the commitment to build a cross-cultural community as a Korean-American. Greg Thompson is a pastor, scholar, artist, producer, homeo sapien, sapien <laughs> whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. What else do we need to know about you guys um, other than wh- where you work and how you spend your time? I think that's that's it. We both we both have families and and uh, do our work in part, you know, for them. Yeah, that's it right. looks like you're ha- you like coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do like coffee. I'm I'm working on a project up in Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania, to build a national memorial the Underground Railroad, and I'm also opening a cocktail bar up here that's rooted in the history of black cocktail making. And this coffee shop filter is the local shop. So yeah, so I'm gonna wrap. Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> How did you two meet? How uh, you wrote a book together? We're going to talk about today. It's called Reparations: A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. And you co-wrote this book together. How did you meet? And how did this idea to co-write come uh, to fruition? Well, we, we we were a part of the same denomination um, as ministers uh, for a number of years, and um, especially kind of intersected through our national campus ministry. Um, and so bumped into each other. I think we met first in that context through campus ministry, maybe. Uh, but then just um, had a, a, a friendship over the years. Um, didn't know each other super well, uh, but got reacquainted or more deeply acquainted uh, starting a few years ago or, or uh, just a little bit after the Charleston shooting. We were convened mm-hmm. uh, by another ministry leader to have a conversation about sort of what, what the church's response uh, to that violence ought to be. And uh, from that point on, sort of kept in touch. But uh, specifically around reparations, um, we connected after or uh, actually during a conference um, that we were both a part of and where I spoke on reparations. And, and, and that was when we started talking specifically about possibly writing a book on the topic. Uh, mm. Not a whole lot of people in our uh, circles that have a, a, a demonstrated interest in in this subject, and so we thought, hey, I mean, let's let's explore this together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was uh, so I was actually shocked at how uh, so I was an American history major, hmm. and and did a lot of my um, studies on like racial injustice and things like that in undergrad and the amount of stories and like first person accounts in this book from history that I just had never heard before, uh, blew my mind. Um, Greg, is, is that part of what you brought to this project? Well, I think we, you know, we both brought, we both brought that. Um, and that was one of the fun things about this collaboration. I mean, um, I, I obviously I have a background in, in civil rights history, um, their PhD at EVA on, on that. Um, and so was able to mine some of those resources. Uh, but I have to say, I feel like Duke Duke's deep knowledge of these issues um, mm. were able to make, we were able to be kind of consistent throughout, no matter what, who was writing what chapter, uh, just the resources that were available to us. We felt, I felt really grateful for that. And I think this made it a good collaboration. Um, so, yeah, it was fun. To, I think we actually learned a lot from each other, too, in this process. You know, I mean, I would bring something and Duke would there were things that, you know, Duke was writing in chapter four that I just did not. I just had never heard before. And so yeah. that was really fun to, to kind of pull those things together and learn and grow together through this process. Yeah. 
Duke, you mentioned that uh, in your particular circles, maybe like um, in your particular domination, that reparations isn't talked about very much. Why, why do you think that is? And how did that present unique challenges as you put this book together? Was that in your mind? And, and what did you do to sort of uh, try to address that? Well, it's not only uh, not common, it's, it's actually broadly frowned upon. Um, as is the case in, in a lot of uh, more conservative evangelical circles, uh, Presbyterian circles. Um, there's just a deep suspicion around uh, topic. Um, it, it's viewed as being alien to the Christian faith, um, as something that's derived from, um, as it's typically said, uh, more liberal or Marxist uh, kind of ideologies. And, um, and of course, there might be some intersections in different ways and, and uh, different um, origins to different aspects of these theories. Uh, but we feel like it's also a, a rigorously uh, biblical um, concept, mm-hmm. um, if we look at scripture rightly. Uh, but so we, we knew that that was uh, some of the challenge that we faced. Uh, to be clear, we didn't necessarily write it specifically for our denominational context. Uh, we, we wanted a, a broader audience for those who were willing to be challenged or willing to listen. Um, but in terms of some ways that we uh, catered to, or at least tried to speak into um, that audience, um, namely those who are Christians committed to the scriptures, but also who might be resistant to or suspicious of the idea of reparations. Um, you know, first we felt like we needed to actually explain uh, the argument as carefully as we could and as clearly as we could. Um, secondly, we felt it needed to be grounded in a historical and biblical understanding of reparations. And so we actually spend a good amount of time in uh, the Christian scriptures. And, um, but then also we do try to address some of the specific concerns and hesitations that people have. So for example, you see right away in the introduction, um, us acknowledging that there's uh, hesitancy or even with the, the language of reparations and the language of white supremacy. So both with some empathy as well as some challenge, Uh, We try to acknowledge that struggle, but also um, challenge people on it and still continue to use even words that some people might resist. Yeah. Yeah. And the book largely breaks down into two sections. I don't know if you think about it like this, but as I think about the totality of it, it strikes me that the first half is sort of a history about why are we having this conversation? And the second half is more of a biblical theology slash call to the church, the mission of the church to sort of like why reparations isn't just a a good idea or something, our our civic duty, but it's actually part and parcel to the the kingdom of God. Um, How did we get to a place, maybe, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, where um, the idea of repairing harm done seems sub-Christian or non-Christian. How do we get to a place where maybe for many of us who grew up in conservative evangelical circles, that that's verboten or or not talked about? How do we get to that place? Well, you know, from my perspective, I think um, it's because the, the kind of tradition that we've been a part of, the the broad, I mean, this is true of Protestantism broadly in certain aspects of, of culturally conservative Catholicism, um, but certainly in white evangelicalism has had as a core part of its identity adopted a sort of American exceptionalist notion that that we're on the right side of history and that the bad guys are, you know, alternatively in Japan or Russia or somewhere at Vietnam or somewhere else. Um, Meaning the threats are always exogenous for us. And I think that that has actually become a, a spiritual way of being. 
And it certainly is reflected in the, our theological methodologies. The presumption is that the problem is always outside of us. And, and even now, when you see these, you know, kind of Christian thought leaders talking about the great challenges chasing the, you know, facing the church, surprise, surprise, it's always coming from somewhere else. <laughs> and so I think what we have to recognize is that um, reparations requires the, the problem to be within us <laughs> and for us to have contributed to that. Um, or at least to be proximate to it. And so, um, and it requires us not to fundamentally see ourselves as victims, which is one of the deep pathologies of American hmm. evangelicalism. And so um, I think that, that in really, because of the cultural narratives that we, that we have bought in, the kind of mythologies of American exceptionalism and, and the, the church as uh, the American Christian church is sort of a shining global example, which is utter nonsense. Um, but we're deeply committed to that. Um, and because we have uh, a spiritual and rhetorical practice of externalizing our threats and, in fact, deriving our, um, our identities from our ability to defend against those threats, that's mm. what constitutes leadership in evangelicalism. <laughs> yes. It's really hard um, to, to say, oh, actually, wait a minute. We live in a profoundly broken place that we ourselves broke. Um, we are not the defenders of righteousness. We are, as we say in the book, the beneficiaries of, of you know, uh, the breaking of children. And so yeah. that's a different kind of spiritual practice. That's a different kind of discursive commitment. And I frankly think that the evangelical, quote, thought machine um, has not, is not equipped and, does, and thereby does not equip the church to have the kind of vocabulary and, and conversations that reparations requires. Yeah. So it's a moral and theological crisis that we're unable to tell the truth about ourselves. Yeah, it's an uh, expression of it's that. That's exactly right. It's an expression of a longstanding um, crisis. And I think this is, we have to remember. You know, if you read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, the first white person that you see in that novel is blind, and that is that is on purpose um, because mm-hmm. of the broad um, African American cultural recognition. This is you know part throughout history the recognition that that white culture, white supremacy is functions in, in, in basically a pathological way um, where we live in a reality um, that is predicated upon our pretending that it's not real. And that, that, is, what, that is what white supremacy has, has done um, and continues to do. And, and I think that has profound spiritual effect. Yeah. <clears throat> you- Greg, I'm interested for you to kind of explain a little bit to our listeners, because what I'm hearing you say is, first, we, we've got to be aware. There's got to be some self-awareness of, of there's a problem in here, in my heart, in what in me as a human. But it goes beyond just being aware and just being able to even verbalize it to actually like, what does it really look like to be repaying for harm done? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think part of what we're why we structured the book in the way that we did and with the, with the introduction about history, about the kind of nature of history and the approach that we're taking and the events of this culture is we have to, we're just trying to help people see what has happened. Um, and, you know, again, that's a direct reference to Ralph Ellison's claim about, you know, blindness. Um, and I think part of what we want our people to do is to say, in some ways it begins with us, but in, in some more important ways, it doesn't begin with us. It begins with something that we have collectively inherited and that therefore we're responsible for. 
And we, we really go to links to say, yes, racism is a personal prejudice. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a relational estrangement. Yes, it's, it's a certain form of institutional injustice. All those are true. But fundamentally, in a way that expands and includes all those, it's a cultural order that we all are formed by. And I think the, the usefulness of that is not only does it uh, provide a more comprehensive account of what American racism is, but it also, in a sense, allows us to, in some ways, look at it as, as something that is both within us and outside of us, something that we're responsible for, but that we didn't create. Yes. Um, and so, and I, I think that part of the issue that, and you see this when people are writing either reviews of this book or talking about race or reparations generally right now in our communities, is that, there, is that I'm not racist. I never own slaves. And what, what those kind of objections, what they illustrate is that um, w- people do not understand the nature of this conversation, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they don't understand the nature of racism, that they actually don't understand what we're, what is being talked about and what needs to be talked about. And so we fall back on these conventional, you know, um, tropes about like, well, I didn't own slaves. Um, and so I think part of what we're trying to do, Chris, is just is help people to say, this is about something that is happening historically and culturally that we are embedded in and also responsible for and trying to give people that kind of moral imagination. Yeah, that's so good. So important. Yeah. It, what strikes me too, and I, I want to, uh, what I want to do is I want to maybe double click on this word reparation. What uh-huh. is it? What are we advocating for when we say that? And, but uh, it strikes me that, you know, theological traditions, many of us come from traditions that emphasize total depravity and the need for someone to acknowledge that the sin or the fallenness of the world touches every aspect of our lives. Um, and the, the person who could, you know, uh, would preach that and maybe would ascribe to that and put it on their website, then kind of loses their biscuit when you suggest that maybe uh, their concept of, of what it means to be a human <laughs> is touched by like whiteness <laughs> as a part of the fallenness of creation. It's just, it's perplexing. And I think it speaks to some of the maybe spiritual forces that are at work in uh, maybe in the hegemony of white supremacy. Yeah, Duke, you want to speak to that? Go for it, man. I got distracted for a second. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, in that, in that case, go ahead and, and say um, say say that again, Matt. Let's. let's yeah, let's I just it just strikes me that those of us who ascribe to total depravity and who hold to the the brokenness, fallenness, sinfulness um, that it's it's not just in, in one aspect of our lives, but it touches everything. That then, when someone suggests it touches your concept of race or your concept of what it, your anthropology. Um, or your doctrine of creation, even, uh, and you use the word, you use the R word, right? Like uh, that's that's racist. That's a racist idea. Uh, people lose their biscuit. It's like we we want we want our we want our doctrine of sin to be safely abstract and like on a website, but we don't actually want to reckon with racist ideas or the way that whiteness, like you said, I love this concept of the cultural norming of what it means to be like good or normal or ordinary is shaped by whiteness. And I'm just wondering if you guys have noticed that and how you, how you navigate it. Yeah. You know, I think one thing you have to keep in mind is that the way we talk about theology is, is set against the backdrop of the, of what we think is at stake, the foes that we think that we're arguing against. So for example, in like reformed evangelical Protestantism, the historic enemies have been Catholicism the Baptist tradition uh, and in evangelicalism, the kind of liberal tradition. Um, th- those, and so theological, um, when we talk about depravity in the Reformed tradition, it's often against like Pelagius or something like that. So we're participating mm-hmm. in these longstanding Augustinian battles. But um, 
we have, because we can't conceive of ourselves as in part the enemy, we continually, it, it just shows that we haven't developed, we haven't really drawn out all the implications of what total depravity means because we continue to fight, you know, fifth century and, and 16th century theological battles mm. and think we're doing God's work. And I think that what we have to understand is that um, you're pointing, you're pointing out a theological contradiction, which is there. And it's a form of, it's a form of moral and theological incoherence. And the reason for that is that in my view, one of the reasons for that is that American Christianity always wants to, again, externalize the enemies. And you can, you can understand what people, people's theology not just by what they say, but by observing the enemies that they think they're fighting. And that will really tell you a lot of in the reformed American church, they really are still arguing against the council of Trent, you know, from they're, they're still talking about, about that and not really applying their theological categories to the world in which they live. And that is just transparently true. in a, in a lot of what we see. Yeah, Matt, I, I, I think it's such an important question um, because like Greg said, there, there's a fundamental inconsistency and contradiction um, that uh, American evangelicals seem to be unaware of. In, in fact, you can't fix it even because they're, they're unaware of it. And especially in this conception of sin, we have this doctrine, as you mentioned, at least in the Reformed tradition of total depravity, uh, which means uh, Reformed people, uh, Protestant people, should be the first people uh, to understand any notion of uh, sin being deeply embedded, not only in human hearts, but human institutions, uh, yes. that, that we should be the first people that would be, that should be suspicious that this might be so rather than the most resistant to it. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a doctrine that supposedly undergirds, uh, some of these ideas that we've proposed and, and yet Christians and especially conservative and reformed Christians can be the ones that most vehemently oppose this idea. So for example, uh, one place in which we see this increasingly, is the identification of white supremacy, which in our book we describe as being original to America, uh, pervasive across its institution and enduring to this day, which of course is a a quite comprehensive understanding of the powers of white supremacy. Uh, Many people who look at that and say, well, you're just creating then a new original sin. In fact, you have supplanted the orthodox definition of original sin now with white supremacy. Um, which proves that we are, uh, in our argument, um, being unorthodox. Um, and I, I understand what they're doing. I understand, I think, better what they're trying to do, hmm. which is to obviate the argument and to uh, sort of re- reverse uh, sort of the identification of the problem is not uh, it being in white supremacy itself, but rather in a liberal conception um, of race and racism. Um, mm. in, in validating these claims. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree. We have a problem right now. And the, the lenses that we're using to apply yes. uh, the, the application of our uh, doctrinal lenses to these problems, and we've in too many cases got it wholly backwards. Uh, yes. we, we should be able to see things, and yet we're proving again and again that we're totally blind to them. Yeah, and what that does, you guys, is it points to the fact that evangelicalism is not even though it continues to imagine itself as like a theological project, is in fact a cultural project mm-hmm. um, that mistakes itself for a theological project. And yes. so, um, be, and and so when we read when we read reviews like the you know one Duke was just referring to that says, well, when you talk about white supremacy, you made it a new original sin, or when you um, you know talk about reparations, you're you're diminishing the doctrine of justification. 
That is utter nonsense. I mean, theologically, <laughs> that is completely ridiculous. It is. There is no justifiable theological rationale for making the claim that the talk about white supremacy is therefore to diminish original sin. That is absurd. But what it does, why it's useful, and why I'm glad some of these folks are writing this in public, is because it indicates that they are operating out of a theological system that is not fundamentally about creative engagement with the realities of this world, that is fun, but is fundamentally a strategy of control. And mm-hmm. so I think that we, we have to keep in mind and name that for what it is, because there are some of these people who are writing and presenting themselves as Christian theologians right now that are not. They yeah. are actually just people who are, who are um, sacralizing a cultural project. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the. Go ahead, Christy. Uh, I was go just ahead. gonna. I was just gonna. I think for our listeners, uh, some people might be listening to this saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm in the kiddie pool. Help me, time out. Help me, di- like understand what you're talking about." So, can you just like pretend like you're talking to a kindergartner, right? <laughs> and like me, and and tell us what? How would you define reparations? And and give us like a little bit, maybe a two minute version, a synopsis of that. Sure. Yeah, let me, so, let me, go ahead, you do it. Oh, yeah. Um, reparations is a word that scares off a lot of people um, because of all that's been associated with it. Reparations, right. the word itself comes from, the, the root word is repair. And uh, so the idea then is that you're trying to fix things that are broken. Um, yes. Specifically, uh, we believe that what has been broken um, is, the, uh, is America by way of historic mass multi-generational thefts. Uh, So things have been stolen from African-Americans and their communities from the very beginning of the American project. Um, And what we describe in the book is that this is not just the theft of their wealth, which is the uh, normal, narrow way of understanding reparations in the public conversation around reparations, uh, but rather not only wealth, but there's also a theft of power and a theft of truth that was involved as well. Reparations is the return of those things that were stolen. And we believe that from the Christian perspective, uh, the moral logic is grounded in two ideas. One is restitution, which is the biblical mandate that anytime a thief takes something, that they need Mm -hmm. to not only repent and confess their sin, but give it back. And secondly, restoration, which is a word that we're using to describe what we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan, neighbor love that gives back to someone that was robbed what was robbed, even if you yourself were not the robber. Right. So you give it to them um, and you restore to them things that were sinfully taken. Uh, Reparations is just that act of giving back and restoring uh, those uh, things that were uh, stolen, uh, taken. Yeah, I I like, Chrissy, that you you said frame it to a kindergartner because actually it's the kindergartners in our churches that already understand this intuitively. Right. Like if, I took, if I took my son and said, okay, you're in a situation, you take from something from somebody, what are you supposed to do? He's going to say, I'm supposed to give it back. Or if I say to him, hey, you see your friend take something from somebody else, what are you supposed to do? He's, he's going to say, I'm going to make sure that that thing is returned. Our children already know this. Um, right. And so I, I think you're, you're right to, to frame it. It really is a kindergarten's argument. No, you're right, man. Right. Because when, when, when a kid gets something, a toy grabbed from them in the preschool playground or whatever, what do they yell? They say, give it back. They don't, their instinct is not to yell, say, sorry. Right. Right. They don't say, give me a hug. 
they say mm-hmm. give it back and right now. Yep. And, and yet yep. when we become adults, and especially Christian adults, somehow uh, we forget those mm-hmm. foundational lessons and we start to talk differently. And we say all right. you need to really do is say sorry. And why aren't you moving on already? Well, yeah. in, in the second half of the book, you are really giving a call to the church to give it back, right? right. I mean, that's, that's your heart. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we, I mean, we found the, the, the argument of the book is that though there are different parties and institutions that, uh, that owe reparations, uh, we believe this to be true of the government. Um, others have argued that this also should be true of uh, academic institutions as well. Um, but we really believe uh, that the church bears enormous responsibility for white supremacy, not only that we find in, in the church, but also uh, more broadly across America because of the ways in which we participated in, uh, served as accomplices to, and also silently stood by as these thefts were being uh, committed. Um, and so the church itself must um, give back that which was stolen. It's a Christian responsibility, not just an American one. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Uh, Duke, I was going to say, I, I there's a few there's a few pushbacks I receive all the time. Um not only in real life, but also I see these pushbacks online. And I, I want to just point out, I want to I want to get your thoughts on one of them. And one of them is, hey, um, you are asking me to repair and pay for something I didn't do. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I didn't steal bodies. I didn't own people. I didn't take land, et cetera. And, and so this is what I hear. If you're going to push, if, that, if that's my responsibility and you're saying that I'm guilty of that, that I can be guilty of, you know, uh, something that I didn't volitionally uh, do or even like stand around with somebody else did it, <laughs> then you're compromising the sinlessness of Jesus. Have you guys heard this argument? You're, <laughs> you're compromising, because if if I can be complicit in something I didn't do, if there's right. corporate responsibility, then you're saying that Jesus was complicit in, for instance, uh, male-centric patriarchy that demeaned women uh, because he lived at that time. And so this is why it's a unbiblical way of talking about responsibility and guilt. Have have you guys heard that? Uh, we've heard different versions of that. I mean, that 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 was the way you worded that precisely was an interesting twist there at the end. You you went somewhere I wasn't quite expecting. Uh, but but uh, of course we've heard any norm uh, any number of versions of that um, because it's a, a central um, concern and objection uh, that people do raise. Um, I mean, it's helpful when a person like that names the name of Jesus in, in the context of that objection, because here's the truth. The story of our faith is the story of one who made what we call a vicarious atonement. 
Right. Um, Come on. We we believe in a Jesus who repaid that which he did not steal. And that is almost a direct quote out of the Belgic Confession from the 16th century. Um, and so we should not fundamentally have a problem with the notion of generously repaying things that we personally did not steal. That being the case, it's important also to point out that Scripture um, talks about responsibility for restitution as being more than just an individual enterprise. In, in, in individual burden. Mm. So for example, ancestors of thieves are responsible to uh, for paying back or restoring stolen goods that have passed down through the generations to the descendants of the victims of the original theft. So even if you personally not only didn't take that thing, but maybe even weren't alive when that thing was taken, if mm. it's in your hands presently, you need to give it back. Mm. And not to give it back is to be involved in a perpetual theft, uh, to be stealing all over again that which was taken. This is simply the reflections mm. that uh, commentators, theologians, and divines had in prior centuries on Numbers chapter 5, verse 8, uh, that <laughs> talks about the importance of seeing this as being a generational responsibility and not just an individual one. The other part of uh, the equation that we need to consider, I think, is that simply by being a willful beneficiary of theft, you're cheerleading for it, you're happily receiving it, and you know that it was stolen goods, you are then also, even again, you weren't a part of the crime, you weren't driving the getaway car, but if you knowingly receive stolen goods, you are also required to give it back. Uh, these are basic principles of restitution that were taught in prior centuries that yeah. we have uh, all kinds of information on if we just do the research which we present in the book, where yeah. again and again the consistent teaching of the church uh, was that uh, we need to give these things back even if we were not individually involved. Um, and this is what uh, such individuals, both real and hypothetical met, uh, need to really reckon with. <laughs> Um, this is, again, not stuff we're making up. This is part of our Christian moral tradition. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, not, it's not really well known. I mean, we like, like you're saying, we have this amnesia about it, and then it sounds like it's godless wokeism mm -hmm. to even speak about these things, you know? So the frames we have, you know, Greg, earlier you mentioned kind of the syncretism of American culture and Christianity, and we don't recognize that the frames we have are syncretistic in the way that help us to sort out these biblical uh, realities, these kingdom, uh, the kingdom economic reality of having of repairing things. Um, you know, you mentioned the the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story, which is I think brilliant, Duke, in the way that it circumvents this whole conversation about guilt, uh, because you don't actually have to. The Samaritan isn't guilty in the story, right. but the the Samaritan embodies this. Uh, canonic love of of Christ. He lays down his life for his friend, and that's the call. So we could actually even not even have a conversation about uh, who's who's to blame <laughs> or who's who's got guilt, because we still have this command or this call to love. That's right. 
And, and the way we lay out that the, 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 the gospel logic of reparations in our book is that we are required by the principles of restitution to give back things that we ourselves have stolen, those things that we are complicit in the theft of. But there is also a more excellent way of love, neighbor love, and that means that even if we were not personally responsible or corporately directly responsible for these thefts, we still would be required, according to the law of love, to participate in the repair of these things. But that being said, circling back, we are responsible because <laughs> of our guilt and <laughs> our culpability as a, as, as a church. Uh, and so it's, it's really both of those that need to be carefully considered. Yeah, and I want to say, um, I feel like the, the, the locus, the actual locus of this argument that we need to have culturally and, and publicly now is not really about history. I mean, the, the historical realities are what they are. It's not like they're secret, like you can find them and, and they're real. Um, it, it's, it's really about this syncretistic um, amalgamation that you were describing earlier. I mean, the fact of the matter is that that argument that you, that you referred to earlier is, is like a faux Christology. It's an attempt to use Christology uh, in a way that is utterly incoherent um, and, uh, and and misses the larger point. And I think that this is where we have to like actually have this conversation is at this level of syncretism, because I think and one of the clearest examples of that for me is that at a time when the world has been um, moving together in many ways in this call for black liberation over the past year, 2020, especially in light of George Floyd's death and, and others, um, when people are marching in the streets, when African-Americans, Christian and not Christian, are talking about what their liberation means, white Christians, do you know what we've been talking about? Marxism. That's yeah. what we've been talking about. Now, these people are doing it, you know, and a lot of them discovered Marx like five minutes ago. But they're, they're doing it. They're, no, seriously, if you read what they write and you're like, okay. Um, so they're doing it without recognizing that they are repeating one of the oldest yes. quotes of American conservatism. This stuff that's being written by, I don't know, say some people in the say gospel coalition world, it could have been written by J. Edgar Hoover. Th this stuff is like, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm not kidding. Yeah. They are a part of a cultural tradition that whenever black people start talking about liberation yes. since 1917, white people who identify themselves as defenders of the, of, of orthodoxy and American national greatness start talking about marxism and calling black liberation un-american this is why we had the red summer in 1919 okay mm. this is why martin luther king was consistently called a marxist this is why bayard rustin was consistently called a marxist even though these things were demonstrably false um and these these people who believe themselves to to have insight uh and to be theological leaders all they are doing is parroting the stuff that has been handed down to them by a tradition that is transparently prejudicial. Yeah. And I think that, that it, it, you can see this syncretism happening before you. And I think we just have to call it for what it is and not, not pretend that we're having some Christological debate. We're not. That, that, that argument about Christology is transparently incoherent. This isn't <laughs> about Christology. This, isn't about, this is about are we going to actually recognize the degree of our syncretism or are we not? And I think that that is really where the kind of public confrontation in evangelicalism needs to happen. Yeah, and we, and we see okay. that, right? Even, even in the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, where actually the framing of the parable, which was a real life engagement that Jesus yes. had with 
this expert in the law, uh, right. right, upon being confronted by his inability to love neighbor, for example, individuals like a Samaritan down the street from him, right? So whether if it's racial bigotry or if it's other reasons for which he wants to hate rather than love his enemy, when Jesus says, no, you got to love, when in fact, Jesus got him to say it himself, <laughs> uh, uh, quoting the law, uh, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself, this individual wants to have a theological conversation. Oh, well, hold, 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 hold on. Who is my neighbor? He, he, yeah, let's he, talk. Let's talk. <laughs> right? I mean, he, he, he wants to cast it as a theological issue and brings to bear theological convictions when, in fact, his objection is based upon cultural convictions yes. and, and emotional uh-huh. ones and psychological ones, right? Uh, in other words, theology that's consistently used to justify and rationalize um, immorality. Um, and sinful preferences uh, that are found in cultural preferences. So uh, again, it it not only dates back uh, to prior centuries of American racial history, it goes all the way right back into scripture because it begins in the human heart. Yeah, we come by it honestly. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Totally, totally. Okay, so I'm just going to dive in here because you guys are the experts and I had a situation uh, just this week that you guys can help flesh out a little bit because I was thinking when it happened – you two are the ones to help me know what I should have done or what I could do in the future. Um, and because I think uh, maybe our listeners are going, okay, well, how do I do this in my own life? What does it look like to, to really like stand up and repay and, and do the right thing to give it back, so to speak. Um, so my best friend flew into town and I took her to get a pedicure. Bear with me. I know there's three boys on this call, so hang on. I've got three daughters. (laughs) Okay, good. So we're sitting there getting a pedicure, and uh, everyone who works in there um, are Asian, and um, and so a guy walks into the the building and he starts screaming racial slurs Mm. against the people who are working there, and immediately all the workers like put their head down and they don't say anything. And I'm like, oh, my word. Like, with with what's happened in the news, I just was like, you know, I don't know. Does this guy have a gun? Like, all of these thoughts start coming into my head, right? And um, no one's talking. And he just starts yelling. And so eventually I just say, no, thank you, sir, because I'm like the customer, but I didn't know what to do. And he starts yelling at me. And so eventually he walks out of the building and every like all the workers are like, lock the door. And so they lock the door and they call the cops. And I looked at the woman and I said, I'm so sorry. That must have been so scary for you. It was scary for me. And I'm sorry for what he said. But then I was like, now what? Like, it doesn't feel enough to say <laughs> I'm sorry, mm-hmm. right? Because of all that they were feeling and, and the fear and the anxiety and the, and I was like, what do I do now? I just, I don't know. I just felt a little hopeless. And yet I wanted, like, what does reparations look like in these practical scenarios that we live out in our own little circles? Well, um, first I'm, I'm, um, I'm sorry that that happened. That's horrific. And also, I just want to acknowledge the particular way that that would impact Duke. Um, and um, 
I, I think for us, um, part of what you're doing is bearing witness to the truth. I mean, there, there's not there's not really anything you can do in that situation that's going to somehow make this different than it is. Um, uh, and I think by bearing witness to the truth um, and telling them that you 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 know you see that truth, I think that that's like a really important step. And I think you know Duke Duke has been thinking and writing about this a lot recently about you know. Um, about this this kind of anti-Asian racism that, that's happening and, and why are these communities being targeted and how are they being exploited? And I think part of what we're trying to do is educate and have people educate themselves on that so that concrete reparative step can also be applied to this community because the fact of the matter is they too are having things extracted. They too are have lies being told about them. They too um, are being disempowered in some ways like literally physically. And so I think that, that um, these categories that we're using to talk about reparations generally, specifically in anti-black racist situation are, are easily transferable to what's happening with the API world. And, um, and I think that what you did was probably what you could have done in that setting, not knowing the other, any other variables that, um, that existed in that man, was he about to do something, you know, homicidal or something. I think it's what you could have done, but it it also is helpful to recognize that 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 is happening in a in a in a whole. There's a whole system that is sustaining and making that yeah. imaginable to that man yes. and justifiable. Um, and I think that we have to consistently challenge that. And part of the way we do that is by calling white supremacy what it is and not having these ridiculous conversations about does this somehow work with astrology or justification because um, that's not <laughs> what this is about. <laughs> yeah, no, Christy, I, I appreciate you. Uh, raising that example, and and Greg, appreciate the comments that you you just made too. Um, really appreciate it. And, and of course, that kind of scenario can easily happen in a black establishment as well. And um, you know, it, it's it's sadly, tragically, all too familiar and believable, right? Because it happens all the time. And and also believable is just the intense, uh, uh, more than awkwardness, just hardship it is for individuals in that situation trying to figure out what to do sympathetic to that right sort of like well what do you say especially if a person might be mentally unwell which is often the case and whatever it, it's right. hard i i think um it what we have to do is one even beyond the specific moment itself is see the need for a broader and longer repair of truth to have to happen right because uh, part of the reasons for these incidents is because of the obfuscation of the realities of anti-Asian anti or anti-Black racism, right? Where we need to bring more to the surface, the fact that these things happen, that we need to tell these stories, where we need to make reference to them, where we need to be educated, where we need to have these conversations. I mean, really, sometimes we feel the burden of these things individually. What am I supposed to do? We need to be stoking conversations that we hold together communally, so that it's a shared burden, which is the only way forward anyway. Mm. And we need to be talking about this as a church. We need to be talking about, right? People need to hear from Christy and asking you asking that question to your friends, to your church small group, to your class, to your whoever, uh, mm -hmm. so that we can um, bear these things uh, together and learn that there's a, a, a better way. Um, but that that's what we call the reparations of truth, um, right? Where we are uh, naming 
lies and mythologies and replacing it with the truth about people's image bearing glory. Um, yes. and, and, and that means not only, uh, the, the work of history, but also interpersonal conversations and communal, uh, sort of experiences of that truth. So, um, Chrissy, I, I appreciate the question. It's, it's, uh, those incidences aren't easy. I think we need to locate them in a longer endeavor. Uh, what are we, what are we trying to do over time and how we're responsible for that project? Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, we need to, uh, wrap it up here, but Duke, you, you made reference to, I think oftentimes we think of when we hear the word reparation, um, we think of economic, uh, recompense or remuneration. Um, but you just talked about, and in your book, you talk about this too, that, uh, reparations, there's also a reparation of truth, which means we stop this collective gaslighting around racial issues. And we start just speaking plainly and truthfully about, truthfully about it. Um, not, not just so we can do it in a nail salon, but, uh, so we can unmask the ever changing, ever morphing, always hiding ways that white supremacy wraps itself in myths, uh, which, uh, when you tell the story of how, um, the, the story about the civil war and how we, it, the story kept changing over time based upon what America needed from, to, 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 to move on is a great way to, of talking about, I think, how um, these racial myths sort of hide in plain sight. And so the reparation of truth-telling is often not in our imagination for this is how we can bring repair, um, but it's something I can do even if uh, I don't have a job, you know, even if I don't have any cash, like I can begin to just speak plainly and truthfully about these things. Yeah, I think that that's really the foundation. Um, and Chris, yeah, that's why I think what you did was reparative. Um, not comprehensively so. Look, that's not in anybody's capacity, but um, it was it was reparative, and I, and I actually think that this is this is why, and this is where the cultural battle, in my view, and in, in our like broader tribe is um, uh, is are we going to tell the truth about American history, or are we not? Are we going to tell the truth about our role? Are we going to tell the truth about what it means to be a person, or are we not? Um, and I think that that really is the, the kind of what, what's, it, what's at stake right now. Um, and I think that's why we spent so much time, you know, in the book trying to talk about, um, uh, trying to give people a framework for how to understand and how to talk about what, what's real. And, and I personally think that um, if, the, if certainly if the evangelical church, uh, which may have done so much damage to itself at this point that, it, you know, who knows what its future configuration is going to be. But if it is going to have any integrity, it is going to have to begin to tell the truth about the world. Mm. Uh, and it's going to have to be willing to, to name what things are and stop hiding behind euphemism and start, you know, challenging, uh, you know, doing these alleged, these kind of fake genealogical studies of words like white supremacy and calling them Marxist. It's got to, it's got to decide whether it's going to tell the truth about the world or not. And if it doesn't, then nobody should care what we think. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that 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 is it. Because, and honestly, I think if people do tell the truth, then people respond. I mean, look at what happened with human trafficking, okay, with IJM and other things. People weren't talking about that a few years ago. People weren't talking about that 15 years ago, mm-hmm. right? But the, you had Christian leaders telling the truth about what was happening to women and children around the, around the world. And guess what? The church like started doing stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And when I, I honestly see some of these theological gatekeepers as the equivalent who, who are denying this kind of racist stuff as the equivalent of people who are arguing, who are saying, I mean, how bad is, is trafficking really? I mean, like really, how, what are the numbers in India? I mean, how do we even know there's so many people? That's what we're dealing with. And that's yes. why there's a, there's a low grade level of fury with, with me, with these, <laughs> with these people, because I think we are involved in one of the most important moral conversations in Western history. And you want to talk about something else. And so I think if we cannot tell the truth about what's happening, then we are condemned. And I think that we we have to be people and to lead in such a way that says we're going to begin with talking about the world as it is. I totally agree with what you're saying. I, this might sound a little bit cynical, but in talking about that avoidance, I, I actually have wondered just to 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 be candid, if even the human trafficking movement in the evangelical church was itself a way of reframing the language of slavery so that we don't actually have to deal as directly mm. with some of these other uh, issues that are uh, causing so much other resistance. So anyway, not to not to strip away the, the fine example that you use, because I think you're totally right in terms of how the church actually has the capacity to mobilize around these kinds of issues. Um, but I, I have wondered if that too itself is an illustration of, uh, at least obliquely, of the way in which we are willing to pick up just about every else, just about every other yes. uh, instance of American mass moral failure in sin, except for this one. Uh, yes. we're, we're even willing to perhaps support the notion of reparations, financial reparations for other people groups, but just not this one. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, American evangelicals argue for reparations from Palestine to Israel. Mm. Okay, this is not this is not even hard. This is not hard. <laughs> you see, seriously, if you just look and see, okay, we're not afraid to talk about reparations. We're not afraid to talk about enslavement. We're not afraid to talk about ins- uh, trafficking. We're not we're not afraid to talk about economic repayment. All these people talking about Rwanda and all, all these kind of things. All these evangelicals. We're not afraid to do that. We are unwilling to do it when it comes to our own role and 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 the subjugation and decimation of black communities in America. Yes. And the world sees that. Yeah, they do. Karl Marx saw that. One of his greatest arguments against the truthfulness of Christianity was his account of the white Christian church in America and its treatments and its treatment of African-Americans. Everybody sees this. Yes. Yeah. We might as well own that we don't have any clothes on because, uh, other people can see it. We could talk about this all day. You guys are great. I really appreciate the time you've given us. Uh, Maybe if people want to find you out in the great uh, World Wide Web, uh, Duke, Greg, how can they plug your pluggables is what I'm saying. Where, where can we find you? Yeah, well, um, in terms of personal ministry, uh, the church that I uh, lead and lead with a wonderful team is called Grace Meridian Hill. We're part of uh, the Grace DC network here in the District of Columbia. So, of course, if you happen to relocate to uh, this city or to this part of the city, then we would love to have you a part of our congregation. You can find us online, but specifically for the book, reparations.com is our book website and you can find project.com. Oh, sorry. Reparationsproject.com. Uh, yeah. Find, 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 uh, information about the book there and, and ways to plug in. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, um, I, you can find me at, at I, I'm the executive director of an organization called Voices Underground, which promotes African-American cultural history and the Underground Railroad in the, in the kind of Pennsylvania area. And so that is vuproject.org, vuproject.org. 
Um, and so that's kind of where the easiest, easiest place to find, find me. Fantastic. I've, I've said this and I'll, I'll just close with this. I've, I get messages, uh, weekly from people who are having these conversations in their churches and they are trying to talk to their elders about it or their pastors about it or other pastors about it. And they are, um, in places where to talk about this stuff means that you're, like you said, Greg, a Marxist or you're a social justice warrior or you're, uh, you're a liberal. And I, I haven't read a book that I think can speak to people who are suspicious about this stuff better than your book does. It's so well written, so well argued, and it's thoroughly biblical. And so I'm, I'm recommending it to everybody who gets called a social justice warrior uh, <laughs> as maybe a, a way to, like, you guys have wind at their backs. So thank you for this book, and thanks for thank spending time for that, with us Matt. today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank, having us. Right, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.